Well, have you ever used a word only to find out later it means something different now than it did when you used to use it years ago? Language is something that constantly changes, right? New words are being added to the Oxford English Dictionary every year, but can be especially frustrating and embarrassing when you use a word, the definition of which you thought you knew, but find out later you actually don't anymore and it actually means something totally different and probably inappropriate. Back, on 2000, back in 2018 on their website, Reader's Digest listed 15 common words that used to mean completely different things. So take, for instance, the word garble. According to Reader's Digest, the word dates back to the 15th century and used to mean to sift, to separate out impurities. Now it means to cause something to be confusing. So I take it that the definition of garble has over time been garbled, right? Or, or take the word nice, dating to the 14th century. Apparently at some point nice meant foolish. Now it means to be kind or good or something pleasant. My favorite was backlog which probably some of us are feeling in our work or our personal life as the end of the year approaches, but actually meant the back log, the biggest log in your fireplace. Take that and reuse it. Bring that one back. Well, this afternoon we come to a passage in the Gospel of Mark where we see Jesus working on a redefinition. He's working to redefine for his disciples a word, a concept, greatness. What does it mean to be great? The disciples seem to have a flowery vision of what greatness will look like for them, but Jesus here speaks into their hearts and reminds them of his definition for greatness. So for the month of December, Lord willing, we're going to break from our study in the book of Proverbs and take four weeks to consider four reasons why Jesus came. So we're in the season called Advent, looking forward to Christmas Day when we celebrate God made flesh. But why is God made flesh good news? Why did Jesus come? Today we see that Jesus came to serve. So take your Bibles and we're going to see why Jesus came to serve in Mark chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 35 to 45. Mark Chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, 
You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, well, with our time this afternoon, let's consider this passage in four different parts. Four different parts. A request, a response, a redefinition, and a rescuer. A request, a response, a redefinition, and a rescuer. So first, a request. Look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So there's the request. Uh, James and John are brothers. They've followed Jesus ever since the very opening verses of Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 3, we've seen Jesus give them a nickname, Boanerges, that is, Sons of Thunder. Makes you wonder if James and John had a motorcycle gang. James and John are some of Jesus' most close companions and disciples, them along with Peter. And in the verses leading up to this passage, Jesus has been speaking of his coming death and resurrection. So look, scan your, your eyes real quick to verses 32 to 34. Uh, Jesus has made it clear that they're going to Jerusalem, and by going to Jerusalem, they're going so Jesus can be killed and after three days rise again. The disciples, though, it becomes apparent, including James and John, haven't really grasped the magnitude of this prophecy yet. I think it's possible that instead of thinking about all Jesus is talking about with his flogging and his mocking and his suffering, I think their thoughts are going instead to maybe where their thoughts have been for years now. That maybe Jesus is the Messiah who will restore an earthly kingdom. And they may be consumed at this time with what they picture to be Jesus' soon-to-be victory over Israel's enemies. After all, they're going to Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying something big is going to be happening. And Jesus has made some pretty amazing statements about the kingdom he's bringing. So in Matthew chapter 19, which is previous to this story, uh, he has told his disciples, get this, Truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. James and John have heard these things. And even though they've heard Jesus repeatedly talk about how greatness is being a servant... I think it's safe to say their primary concern here in Mark 10 doesn't seem to be for Jesus' glory or for his call to servant-hearted discipleship. Their number one concern here seems to be for their own 
status. They presume that Jesus is going to Jerusalem and sooner or later he's going to rule in Jerusalem. And when he does, well, they want to be right by his side. They want to be at the center of it all. When he gets interviewed by cable news, they want to be kind of right there in the background. James and John have taken the good news of Jesus' coming kingdom and for the moment have made it all about them. Do you see what they've said there? We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Instead of, we want to do for you whatever you ask of us. They've taken Jesus' call to discipleship and flipped it upside down. Haven't we done the same, Christian? More times than we care to admit, we have taken the relationship we have with our Savior, and instead of rejoicing in it and seeking his glory alone, we go right to what we can get out of it and how we can use it to elevate ourselves. It's oh so easy to mock the sons of thunder when we can be just as thunderous ourselves. That's the request. Let's see the response. There's actually two of them. The first one comes from Jesus. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Question kind of anticipates a no answer. Jesus sees their hunger for glory and he asks this incisive question that shows them, if they will have ears to hear, what his path to glory is going to look like. See, the path for Jesus to the glory awaiting him is a path that's hedged in by suffering. The cup he speaks of there is a cup the Old Testament prophets knew very well. So, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 15, we read this. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. So the cup to which Jesus refers here is a cup of God's judgment on sin, God's righteous wrath against all iniquity. And Jesus is going to drink that cup for his people. He's going to bear that wrath for his own. That's the route his path to glory takes. The baptism, likewise, is a reference to his death. So in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, Jesus tells his disciples, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is using two images here, one of a cup to be drunk and a a baptism to be immersed with as pictures of his suffering to come. And so he's asking James and John, who so crave glory, If they're willing to suffer his sufferings with him so they can then glory in his glories with him. The answer presumes a negative answer. The question presumes a negative answer, but they say, you got to hand it to them. We're able. And so Jesus responds, the cup that I drink, you will drink. 
and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, I can't grant your wish. That's the Father's privilege. However, do you see what Jesus is doing in his response? He's giving them, these beloved disciples, an idea of where their greatness can be found if they'll find it. It won't be found in power. It won't be found in control. It will be found in suffering for the sake of their Savior. See, James and John may not drink the cup of wrath or be baptized with death just like Jesus. No one's going to be able to do what Jesus has come to do. But they will be given a great gift. They're going to be able to share in his sufferings. Peter says in 1 Peter, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, Jesus will bring James and John into his glory. But their path, like his, will be marked by suffering for the name. And in that suffering, they're going to find true greatness. They may not see this yet. I think it's safe to say they definitely don't see this yet. Their desire is for their own fame, their own reputation, but Jesus' desire for them will win out at the end. They will suffer for his name's sake. Why? So they might rejoice in his glory when it's revealed. This is what happens, friends. These two sons of thunder suffer for Jesus in the years following his death. So in Acts chapter 12, Luke writes, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Revelation chapter 1, written by John, James' brother, He says, I, John, I think this is beautiful. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. Why? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You hear the difference in tone in John's voice? Here in Mark, John is saying, I want a favor, Lord. I want you to do whatever I ask of you. Make me right-hand man in your kingdom when it comes. But years later, after seeing his own Savior go to the cross, John calls his role in the kingdom that of a partner in the tribulation. And he sees his hope not in immediate fame, but in patient endurance. What grace For Jesus to meet disciples like us where we are and lead us where we must go. So that's Jesus' response. There's another response. Look at verse 41. Perhaps this would be our response as well. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, if you've read this story before, perhaps you have had the same thought I've had. Of course they're indignant. 
I mean, how dare James and John be so audaciously arrogant? Who do they think they are? But I'm not sure that's the full picture of why these other ten disciples are so miffed at James and John. Sure, they're upset James and John went to Jesus and asked for this status symbol. But it's possible their anger isn't necessarily as much at James and John's selfish request as it is at James and John's sneaky way of requesting it. See, they want honor too. Haven't they been with Jesus too? How dare James and John try to get in secretly on what they want too? See, this isn't a battle between the proud disciples and the humble disciples. This is a battle between the proud disciples and the prouder disciples. Or at least the proud disciples that are a little bit more shrewd in business. They're the sons of thunder. All right, those are the responses. And so in light of those, it seems like another talk is due between Jesus and his followers. And that's what happens there in verse 42. So request, responses. Now we see a redefinition. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called to them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus points the disciples to to those they know well, to the Gentile rulers, the Roman rulers, and Jesus points to them and says, You know how they take greatness and status symbols, don't you? You know how they view power and prestige. Think about that. Take that, take that. Think about it, see it. That's not you. (laughs) It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus is not advocating that authority and leadership are in and of themselves bad things. But he's getting to the heart motivation behind his disciples' indignation. They want to be first. They want to be great. And they're buying into a definition of greatness that is in stark contrast to his call on their lives. What Jesus calls his disciples to is service and humility. The truly great ones in his esteem will be those who serve. For Jesus, he's not looking for the most gifted. He's not looking for the most charismatic, the most vocal, the most powerful, the most influential. He's looking for the most humble, the servant of all. And when he sees that person, he says, I see true greatness. He says the great among his disciples will be Those who are slaves of the people they like, of the people it's easy to serve, of the people who might reimburse them later, the ones who are slaves of all. Christian, Jesus' words here call you to search your heart. Are there people in your life who are unworthy of your service to them? I don't know, maybe someone of a lesser class than you, a lower economic level, a more scandalous background. Maybe it's someone who has an entitlement mentality. 
and is always looking for handouts, just kind of turns you off. Maybe someone who has hurt you, who's gone behind your back, ruined your reputation with others. Do you realize all those categories are you in your sin? You were the lowest of low classes, a sinner, a rebel against God. You were poor and needy, deprived of every good thing in and of yourself. You had a background of great scandal, original sin, a sick, sin-sick heart from the moment you were conceived. You were the perfect picture of entitlement. You thought you deserved all God's good gifts without recognizing him as the giver. He owed you life and breath and happiness, even though you had rejected his rule in your life. You had actively undermined his reputation all your life. And with every part of your being elevated yourself as king of your life, not him. And yet what did he do? He came. He came not to be served, but to serve the only one, get this, the only one who is ever truly entitled to all glory, all wealth, all worship, all blessing, all power, laid it all aside. Became poor that we might become rich, deprived himself of power and took on the form of weak flesh. Who are you not going to serve when your Savior has served you like that? Noah read for us earlier from Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. But church, that's not where that passage ends. The glory of Christmas is not merely that Jesus took on the form of a servant. The glory of Christmas is why he did it. So let's close this afternoon by seeing a rescuer. See, Paul continues in that Philippians passage, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is why Jesus can tell his disciples that service is greatness because when they were hell-bent on gaining their own glory, he laid aside his glory to die for them. So he's come not to call them to serve so they can be saved. He's come to save them so they can serve. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that, folks, is the gospel. 
The gospel is how the Son of Man, Jesus himself, the one worthy of all praise, set aside his rightful glory and came to serve us by giving us not thrones at his inauguration ceremony, not thrones at his emperor installation banquet, but giving us himself. Jesus has given us not the glory we think we need, but he's given us himself. And that's enough. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the most important thing you'll hear today. Each one of us is dead in our sin, rebels against God. We are imprisoned in our sin, headed for final condemnation under God's wrath. That cup we talked about a bit earlier, God the judge will make all who have not turned to him drink it on the last day. Our friend, while each of us was lost in our sin, pursuing our own greatness, Jesus laid aside his great position and gave himself to God the judge as the ransom payment for our deliverance. Our God made low to raise us up. He died on the cross under God's wrath so that instead of the punishment for our sin being heaped on us, it could be heaped on him if we'll only trust and believe in what he's done. Repent of our sin and turn to him. The offer is open to you, brother, to you friend, today. Trust in Jesus. And church family, as we've said, it's this gospel that we don't serve in order to deserve. It's this gospel that fuels our service. We don't serve just because Jesus is a good example of someone who served. We serve because Jesus came and first served us and made us new and has given us new hearts that now love to see not our own greatness, but that of our kings proclaimed. New hearts that now love to seek not our own, our own good only, but the good of others as well. Part of growing in holiness for us as Christians means looking less freaked out when we don't get the greatness and recognition we deserve and more contented when we get to build others up instead. We've come to see that that's true greatness. And there's really nothing to lose. I mean, when your identity is wrapped up in the king, the only one whose opinion matters, and when the king looks at you, he sees his only begotten, or his only, or not his only, his loved son or daughter. When Jesus sees, when God sees that and he affirms you, that's all you need. That frees you up to serve others with abandon. It frees you up to serve others in a carefree way. Not looking for reimbursement, but looking for more rejoicing to the glory of God. So church, feel free to dream a little bit. What could our church culture begin to look like the more we embrace Jesus' call? to service. What if we wholeheartedly bought into this greatness rubric Jesus gives us? What would that look like? 
And you might have great answers to that question, that question that I haven't even thought of, but here's a few thoughts. Maybe it would look like people going out of their way to know the needs of others. Maybe it'd look like more of us being more vulnerable, even to the hurt of our ego and independence. Maybe it'd look like more of us being more open to being served in places we're weak and giving others a chance to serve us. Maybe it'd look like knowing one another well enough to understand spiritual and physical needs. Maybe it'd mean thinking twice about missing a gathering of our church. Not because of what you might miss by not being here. You might be on a spiritual cloud nine and be doing fine. But because of what others might miss when you're not around. Well, as the biblical scholar William Lane points out, John, for one, came around. And he grew to understand Jesus' definition of greatness. See, John went on to write numerous letters in our New Testament, including the letters, the, the Gospel of John, the, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And in 1st John chapter 3 and verse 16, this is what he says. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John got it. It took a while, but he got it. Do you? Do we? Following a Savior who came not to be served but to serve will mean being a church who lays down our lives for one another because that's true greatness. Let's pray. Lord, you had it all. You had all glory. Our minds cannot fathom what it was like to live in the riches of heaven. And you gave it all up. You came to us when we couldn't come to you. And so we proclaim now your great praise. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel and how it has recreated us with hearts yearning to serve. May we go out and live like the changed people you've made us to be through the power of your spirit. Amen.